This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. Hi, it's Graham Scott with you again, and um, welcome to my third podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about uh, what an attitude is and how we develop it, how we can be influenced either innocently, covertly, or by direct manipulation to develop a desired attitude, be it personally, politically, ideologically, commercially, discriminately, or even criminally. I'm also going to talk about how we reinforce attitudes, how we sometimes don't change attitudes, why we don't change attitudes, and uh, I'm going to use probably a very topical example to show um, how an attitude is developed. So if we look at an attitude, what is it? An attitude is really made up of three components. We talk about the cognitive, which is what you think. We talk about the emotional, what you feel. We talk about the behavioural, which is what you do. So it's really feelings, thoughts and actions. So if we gave you a very quick example, say an example of uh, sexist, what's a sexist attitude? Well, the belief might be, if we are sexist towards women, we might have a belief that women don't make effective managers. The feelings, we get anxious, angry, uncomfortable, distrustful, dealing with a woman manager. The behaviour, we avoid working for a woman manager. We wouldn't hire a woman for a management position. We make sexist comments, and we don't see that those sexist comments or sexist jokes are inappropriate. So if you look then, that's the, the cognitive is the belief, the affective is the feelings, and then the behavioural is what we do. So that's, a, I guess, what we'll call a fully developed attitude. And it's interesting too with attitudes, the only part of an attitude that's really visible is the behaviour. So we make assumptions about people's attitudes based on what we see. They're lazy, uh, they don't care about such and such um, because we see actions and we interpret it as an attitude. So how do these develop? And why can they be so different? Why do people have totally different attitudes to things? And the difference, a lot of reasons, the experience, the intensity of the experience. So if I have an attitude towards something that I've not really experienced. It might be an attitude to criminals and I've never really come face to face with a criminal. Somebody else who's suffered a home invasion or something like that may have a totally different strength of attitude than what I would have. So it's how we interpret those things that have happened to us or that we've seen, what we've read and how actually sometimes we build our mental models on mental models Um, So we reinforce an attitude. So, for example, if we have a belief, attitude, mental model, that a co-worker is incompetent and we see that person make a mistake and then it's confirmed. They are incompetent. Our attitude becomes stronger. So two mistakes becomes they always make mistakes. So we'll tell somebody, I don't like working with them, they always make mistakes. So we've built that attitude towards that person. One of the things that we've talked a little bit about before is confirmation bias and how confirmation bias actually protects your attitude. Um, And it's, um, if we talk about, uh, again, I'll use the example of of climate change as I uh, referred to before. 
um, if we talk about literature from somebody who is what we might call a climate denier, then people will say, oh, well, they work for the fossil fuel companies or they've been sponsored by the fossil fuel companies. So that's really deferring and that cognitive bias then doesn't allow us to check and say, well, hang on, maybe this author has got something to say. It doesn't allow us to do that, so we strengthen our attitude. So the, the confirmation bias helps us maintain our attitude. So that's the whole purpose of um, confirmation bias. And and again, if, if say, we see a, a, a favoured politician blatantly misrepresenting the truth, we rationalise that, oh, it was a journalist's fault for the way they asked the question, or it was the opposition's fault for setting the politician up. Basically, we then talk about or what this is, is saying is that the confirmation bias, we rationalise, therefore we maintain our attitude towards this politician. We don't change it, even though in the face of fairly strong evidence that the politician is misrepresenting the truth. And it's interesting when I think about how you give an attitude up and how hard that is, um, my dear old mum, actually, uh, many years ago, mum would have been about 80 at the time, 80 years old, and I talked to her about the abuse in the Catholic Church, and mum was raised as a very strong Catholic, and um, I, I talked to her, I said, you know, what all these things that are coming out about the Catholic Church with child abuse, and she said, I don't want to talk about it, because I'll have to admit that everything I held so dear was wrong, and that was an amazing insight for me into how uh, people hold those attitudes. She knew it was wrong. She didn't even want to pretty much discuss it because she'd have to then almost look at herself and say, wow, everything I've held so dear as a Catholic girl growing up, you know, like 80 years ago, um, would, have to be, um, would have to be wrong. So some of the times even our, uh, our self-talk uh, creates an attitude and that's why a lot of times executive coaches, coaches, all those sorts of people will talk to you about your self-talk, what you say to yourself. And I remember working actually once at a, um, at a conference with some real estate salespeople and a lot of the salespeople were saying, oh, we have a, a saying around here, buyers are liars. And I said, oh, okay, what's that mean? Buyers never tell you the truth. They never tell you what they want. They, they play around with you. They don't really tell you what, what they're after. They're liars. And I said, well, okay, how does that affect? What's the first thing you think when you see a buyer? You're going and looking at this person who's a potential buyer, saying buyers are liars. I said, is that really worth holding on to? And at the conference, they challenged. We had them challenge that and um, how that impacted on the way they formed relationships with their buyers. So there's a whole lot of those sayings that we develop that build an attitude and you're not even really aware of it a lot of times how we do and how we project attitudes is another thing we project our attitude onto somebody else and again I'll use an example of um, my dear old mum around about the same time my daughter at the time was actually at a uh, Catholic school and was singing in the in the school choir and there was all these kids up on the stage and they're all standing there and waiting you know to, to sing and the kids are fidgeting and talking and, and mum leaned over to me, we were sitting there, and she said, those kids shouldn't be fidgeting. Oh, okay. And then I thought about it a bit and I said, mum, you're thinking about when you were a kid at school, what would have happened if you'd have been on that choir and fidgeted? We'd have got a belting by the nuns. 
So you're feeling at the moment anxious for them. Yes, I am. Mum, it's 2000 and whatever it was at the time. Things have changed. Uh, it's not the same anymore. That, that's not likely to happen. And mum found that quite, oh, I didn't think about that. So her belief was that children shouldn't fidget on stage. Her feeling was being anxious and annoyed. And her behaviour, well, actually, I said to her, I said, mum, if you could, you'd go up there and tell those kids to stop fidgeting, wouldn't you? She said, yes. And I said, well, that wouldn't be appropriate behaviour. The behaviour was unnecessary controlling based on beliefs that are no longer appropriate. So sometimes we don't give up attitudes that we hold and we're told uh, what to believe, especially by authority, covertly, overtly. And if you think about children in schools in Nazi Germany, children in schools in the southern states of the United States, what they were, talk about ra- what they were taught about race- racism. And they developed this strong ideology from teachers, police, etc., etc., the authority figures. So they developed attitudes, uh, racial attitudes. And it's interesting, I think, how we sometimes use Google as an authority. And I don't know if you've seen, uh, if you check out on Google, if you're having an argument with your friend, um, do cats make better pets than dogs? And you each decide to go away and get some information. If you Google, Google, interesting to say that, isn't it? Google, Google. (laughs) And you actually type in, do cats make better pets than dogs? You will get 10 reasons why uh, cats are better pets than dogs. 10 reasons or so many reasons why cats make better pets. So you're right, I found out that that's the truth. If your friend Googles Googles in, do dogs make better pets than cats, they'll get 10 answers exactly the same, the 10 reasons why dogs make better pets than cats. And then you look at it and say, well, it's the way I've structured the question. And that's, again, we'll talk about how social media and how media advertising influence our attitudes. Peer influence is another way that we uh, develop attitude, um, how we conform uh, for an attitude to crime. For example, a, a young person wants to be part of a group and that group is going to engage in some criminal activity, stealing or burgling or whatever. They can be influenced to actually be part of the group because of the peer pressure. Personality can create an attitude. So somebody who's um, rule-bound, and if you remember the road raid example I gave you, that's really a, an attitude to what people should do in their driving based on my personality of being very strongly rule-bound. Trusting versus vigilance uh, is another one, and and a whole variety of the personality differences can actually influence um, our our attitude. If we, we protect an attitude, as I've said, we develop it, we reinforce it, sometimes we probably don't change them as much as we we like and it's an interesting thing if you were to do a little exercise check some attitude and ask yourself the questions why am I thinking this for example in Australia at the moment an opportunity for reflection on attitude or mental models would be your view on the proposed referendum read the voice to parliament it's a lot of very strong conflicting views often these views are based on a whole lot of emotions the fear that if we vote yes for the referendum, certain things will happen that we don't want to happen. The fear that if we vote no, that certain things um, will happen. And sometimes challenging an attitude is almost like weightlifting. And sometimes the mental weight is too much. That's why we defer. I don't want to. I don't want to even read about it. I don't want to even discuss it. I don't want to think about it because it's too much. Like Mum, I don't want to think about child abuse in the uh, Catholic Church. 
because it's just too hard for me. So that's one of the things uh, how we actually strongly protect an attitude. So it's interesting if you actually look at some of your attitudes and say, why do I hold this? I'd probably have a bet with most of you say, well, I've checked it and I'm right. That's a bit scary sometimes. And if you look again, how previous continuous exposure creates an attitude or a mental model. For example, in the, um, the Columbia Space Shuttle, the foam always broke off, no problem so far. So this bit of foam is not going to really impact on anything. And our mental models can conflict with the worldview of safety. So in this is, is our attitude to protecting our own ego, which is an interesting thing, um, versus would we compromise safety? And that's really the theory of spouse versus the theory in use. We say we're in favour of safety, but we do things that compromise safety, often knowingly, um, because of our strong attitudes to I can't give in to this because I'll look stupid. Uh, I can't look into this because people will think that I'm not competent. All those sorts of things influence the attitudes we hold and a strong attitude is to our protecting our ego. A lot of attitude development is unconscious and oftentimes we are intentionally manipulated. Advertisers use what we call psychological balance theory. And I'm going to just show you a slide and I'm going to talk that through for those of you who are listening. Imagine if we've got a, um, a triangle and this triangle, just say one person is at the apex, down the bottom left-hand side there's a, um, an object, it could be an ideology, it could be a, a product, and over the other side is a person. So if we, as person one, if we like person two, and person two advocates a strong ideology we might be influenced to adopt that ideology. How we develop that attitude is, say for example, if I have an attitude um, to, a, to an ideology and I believe in that and then you, who is my friend, we're having a talk and you say, oh, I don't believe in that, then because both of those relationships are strong, I may actually choose... So, for example, if I have a strong uh, feeling to a, uh, an object, we'll call it, that's an ideology, and I have a strong feeling to person two, to my friend, but then my friend actually decides that they, or they tell me that they don't support that ideology and they have a total different view. I then may change my attitude to my friend, so suddenly I don't communicate with my friend anymore I don't stay in touch because oh there's just something a little bit wrong so if we were looking at this position now where we've decided that we don't want to have any more engagement with our friend think about this from something one of the big issues and again generally these things are around ideologies they're not about ice cream my friend doesn't like ice cream so I don't like my friend anymore because they don't like ice cream probably wouldn't be significant enough but if I was a supporter of say Donald Trump and I'm a, a strong supporter of Donald Trump and my friend says negative things about Donald Trump I might go in there then and say well I don't want to speak to my friend anymore it might depend if I don't have a strong view to Donald Trump that my friend and their relationship is so strong that I decide that I am now going to change my view. My friend has said, OK, shown me different ways of looking at Donald Trump. 
I might then uh, change my attitude. So that's how, what we call this is psychological balance theory, okay? And this is a little bit to do too with the, um, what I talked to you before about um, peer pressure. Uh, um, so we have if at one part of the triangle the peer group, we have at the other end of the triangle the person and we have, say, robbing a house. The person may have a total, I'm not going to do that, but because of the strength with the peer group and the peer group says we want to do it, then the person might engage. So then the, then the person becomes more strongly associated with criminal activity and more strongly associated with the peer group. And that's how we irrationally develop attitudes. Also as part of that is in advertising how, for example, I'll just use one example, George Clooney advertising coffee. You might think George Clooney's pretty cool and you see George Clooney drinking this particular brand of coffee so you think I'll give that coffee a shot. Celebrities endorsing ideologies, uh, celebrities, celebrities endorsing products, those are the things where you are manipulated for want of a better word by uh, marketers trying to get you to buy their product. So that's where a lot of influences on um, social media, you follow an influencer and you watch what that person's saying and then suddenly the advertisements appear and um, you link your like for that person to the like for the product. So you're more likely to buy that product is is pretty much how it works. I didn't want to go into the whole detail of... um, uh, I guess, psychological balance theory. But what I did want to say is how this is something where you are subconsciously manipulated. Um, I, I can't think of a better word to say than manipulated because that's pretty much about it. So if we looked at how attitudes develop, if I gave you um, an example, imagine that there's a scenario where there's a um, a young person has just graduated as a, uh, say, an IT specialist, and they're working for a firm that does IT problem solving. So, what that firm does is looks as has a series of clients that have issues that they want to solve using IT. Uh, an example of that might be, say, for example, a, a retail uh, group wants to improve its scanning processes for customers to, I guess, self-serve to pay um, rather than going through a checkout. And they want to be able to improve that so that customers can't, I guess, inadvertently or intentionally take product. So this uh, young person has been working on this and working really hard on developing a a strategy for a big client who's a uh, a retailer for an organisation. Now, the owner of the organisation sees this young person working very well and the client says, well, look, I'd, I'd like to know where they're up to. I'd like a project report. Normally, the owner of the business would do this themselves and take the, I guess, the person working on it, the junior, along. But the owner can't make it this time. So they say to the junior, who's been working very well, they think this person's got a lot of potential. So they say, look, why don't you take the meeting? You go and meet with the client. Very important client. You've done very well. I think you've developed this beautifully. Go along. You take the meeting. So the young person's very excited, very enthusiastic. They've got opportunity. They plan their meeting. They plan what they're going to say. They've just got it nailed. They go into the meeting. They're sitting there and... 
the person starts looking at their watch after about five or ten minutes, looking at their watch, looking at their watch. This is very distracting for the young person. Have a little bit of a think. If you were in that young person's position, what would you be thinking and what would you be feeling and what would you do? So the first thing happens is you're observing. You're observing what is happening. And then you, you develop thoughts and beliefs around what's happening and feelings and emotions and behaviour. Note, we've got the gist of an attitude here. Here's some thoughts and beliefs, and I don't know whether these are the ones you came up with. They are rude. My presentation is not going well. They don't like what I'm saying. They're bored. They're not interested. I should not have been here on my own. They clearly don't want to be here. So when you start thinking those thoughts, the feelings and emotions, feeling of insecurity, uh, a feeling of fear, frustration, anger, confusion, disorientation, scared, fear, annoyed. Okay, How, how could they be so rude? These people are so rude. Um, not to even take me seriously. Behaviour, rush the presentation, speak fast, lose focus, lose orientation, stammer. All of those sorts of things could come in and they, they imagine that they do hurry the presentation, leave and say, oh, that was a terrible presentation, but it wasn't my fault. So you're doing a little bit of rationalising here. It wasn't my fault, it was their fault. And... They get back to work and their manager says, oh, how'd that meeting go? It was terrible. I, I, don't, I don't think I should ever deal with that client again. If I have to deal with that client, I, I won't go to the meetings. I want you to go to the meetings. They're just so rude. The manager thinks, wow, I didn't ever know they were rude. I thought they were a great client. It's interesting that that person should say that. If you have a look, what, what happened there? What were the dynamics? What was the process? What was going on to form that attitude? And to do this, I'm going to introduce you to, and some of you probably are aware of what we call the ladder of inference, which was developed by um, uh, Chris Argerus at um, Massachusetts University and um, or the Institute of Technology. Uh, it was written up in a book by Peter Sangi, and there's a lot there. If you Google ladder of inference, you'll be overwhelmed by the information. So it's a ladder. So at the bottom of the ladder, it basically says we have objective data and concrete experience. We have objective data. The objective data, what is really, really happening here, is the person's looking at their watch. That's objective data. Their rude isn't objective data. It's an inference, okay? They don't care isn't objective data. The objective data is they're looking at their watch. So the interpretations are they're rude. My presentation isn't going well. They're bored with my presentation, etc., etc. These are the interpretations that I'm making based on this objective data. I draw conclusions that they don't want to be here, um, this is not going well, so I act. My actions are, I'm going to leave, I'm going to rush it. Okay? So I leave, I form an attitude to this person then that I don't want to deal with them because they're a rude person, because they're not a person that I want to be doing any work with. A lot of the things that influence the emotions, the interpretations often create the emotion, okay? They are rude, creates an emotion of anger, frustration. I'm not getting through 
creates a, an emotion of frustration. Those things, so the emotions then fuel the cognitive of um, interpretation to the conclusion. The mental models already, people who look at their watches during a presentation are rude. If I hold that mental model, well then, bang, I'll immediately go straight to they're rude. The lack of context. Do I really know what's going on? No, I don't. I've made a whole lot of assumptions about why they're looking at their watch. I've done that quickly and I've raced up the ladder of the inference of inference almost without even thinking. The power balance. So I can't really get context because of the power imbalance there. So the person is more powerful than I because they're a client and they're my boss's client who has a strong relationship, so I can't, I don't have the power to even do anything about it. I just have to react rather than respond. However, if I had have, for example, tried to get context, I might have found out something totally different. Um, for example, if I'd have brought it up, and um, we'll talk about this a little bit later in communication, how you might put something like that on the table, and if they put it on the table and the person said, oh, well, really, I'm just, what's happening is my son, daughter's having a small operation at the moment and I was thinking about them and just wondering I probably should have been there. So the person then has an opportunity to say, well, look, I can come back. Is now a good time? Yes, yes, I wanted to see this presentation. I want to see how you're going. I'm interested in seeing it. I'm, I'm sorry I was distracted. Okay, shall I continue? Yes, please. So now we've got all that emotions gone we now can focus on what we're here for, which is our presentation. Five minutes later, they're looking at their watch again. Hey, look, I think you need to be where your mind is. So I'll come back. Are you sure that's okay? I don't want to muck you around. Now who's getting the power in the relationship? The junior is getting the power because the senior person saying, hey, I don't want to inconvenience you. Not getting power, but creating a power balance, Okay a power balance. The person can then say, no, look, I'll come back. Imagine your relationship in the future. How is that person, that client, going to react to you? They're going to say, I want that person dealing with my IT situations. I want that person working with me because you didn't run up the ladder of inference. You took the time to examine the context. So it's a very important, very important context and we do it all the time. And it facilitates confirmation bias, and confirmation bias also facilitates the way we move up the ladder of inference. I remember once I was working in a project, and um, we had a project meeting, and in the project we have the project management team, the clients, uh, the consultants, and anyway, one of the consultants wanted to bring, or actually bought, their lawyer into a, um, into a meeting that we were having on the project. And the project manager and the client immediately, sorry, whoa, we're not going to have a lawyer in the meeting. And I intervened and said, well, what's your concern? Do we know why the lawyer's here? Let's check. So the lawyer said, it was, a, was actually a, the lawyer just joined the organisation and wanted to just sit in the back of the meeting to get an understanding of the, pro, of the project. That's a great thing for them, the lawyer to be informed. So the project manager and those that were objecting to the lawyer attending so that's a great idea so once we get that context it stops us from running up the ladder of interest inference 
So that's, a, a, to me, an important point. I want to talk to you now about probably something that is interesting, is how we developed an attitude in, when I say we, probably the world society almost, developed an attitude to climate change. If you look at, I've just put up a, a photo on the slide there of a polar bear on an ice floe, and this was part of a movie that Al Gore did back, I think, in about 2005. Showed pictures of polar bears drowning as the ice flow deteriorates. And through dramatic imagery, it highlighted the seriousness of climate change, made predictions about sea level rises and natural disasters. And in 2009, Al Gore was actually widely reported as saying at the United Nations Climate Summit in Copenhagen that there's a 75% chance that the entire North Polar ice cap during some of the summer months will, in, will be entirely ice-free within the next five to seven years. And if we see this next photo, and I guess uh, I probably need to say that some of these photos show animals in distress, and this was, according to a uh, Canadian zoologist, Susan Cockford, the gut-wrenching video of an emancipated polar bear struggling to drag itself across a snowless Canadian landscape. And this made billions of people groan in anguish. And it was taken in 2017 by a biologist, um, Paul Nicklin, a co-founder of the Canadian non-profit Sea Legacy. The video was posted on Instagram in December 2017, stating this is what starvation looks like as part of a discussion about climate change. Two days later, Sea Legacy's media and communications partner, National Geographics, published a video with ad added subtitles that began, this is what climate change looks like. The Sea Legacy webpage published video also under a headline that claimed the face of climate change. The message was clear, blame climate change for this bear's fate. The National Geographic video went viral with an estimated audience of 2.5 billion it set a side record, and it garnered international media attention that blamed global warming for the polar bear's plight. And I actually read through some of the responses, and I brought up a few, um, such as, this breaks my heart. I can't believe how some humans don't understand climate change and its negative effects on Earth. I think we all know that climate is a major problem to society, but not all of us understood what it looked like. Thank you for sharing this video. I would die for everything to be normal and healthy and climate was just normal. It's so sad to see them suffer. Guess we are monsters. This next video, it's actually from the 2019 Netflix launched a documentary series titled Our Planet, narrated by Sir David Attenborough. It shows walruses falling over cliffs to their deaths. Viewers are told human-caused climate change has melted the ice the sea ice, leaving these animals no choice but to gather on land. Viewers are told in an attempt to escape overcrowding, hundreds climbed a cliff and fell from heights they should never have been at. The Times of London actually described the walrus as a new symbol of climate change. The reaction by viewers? The saddest thing I've seen in my life. Humans really suck. Extremely tough to watch, but things need to change. In 2013... In a radio address, President Barack Obama explicitly linked disasters and climate change. While we know the single weather event is caused solely by climate change, sorry that no single weather event is solely caused by climate change, 
We also know that in a world that's getting warmer than it used to be, all weather events are affected by it. More extreme droughts, floods, wildfires and hurricanes. Those who already feel the effect of a changing climate don't have time to deny it. Those busy dealing with it, the firefighters who brave longer wildfire seasons, the farmers who see crops wilted one year and washed away the next, Western families worried about what's drying up. He then goes on to talk about the cost of these, these disasters. And then in 2007, in 60 Minutes in Australia, um, the presenter Tara Brown said, we're off to the Arctic where I found all the proof I need that there is something drastically wrong in the world's weather. Stranded in the middle of nowhere with a 3 metre, 300 kilogram bear on the attack is a frightening experience, I can tell you. It's also a graphic lesson in what happens when we mess with nature. Now they're starving, desperate for food. So desperate, even humans look appetising. Churchill, a town under siege. In 2010, the International Panel for Climate Change summary claimed climate change would melt the Himalayan glaciers by 2035. And when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its highly anticipated report on global warming in early August 2021, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres declared it a code red for humanity. The Guardian and the ABC National Science, Technology and Environment reporter Michael Slezak and the specialist reporting team Penny Times, Tims actually had this um, posted uh, and this was posted actually around uh, the same time and said fires are predicted to get worse and more frequent due to climate change. That was from the ABC News. This picture was posted with an article on August 2021. shows a very dramatic photo of a kangaroo fleeing in front of a fire in Australia. We see the Australian fires of 2019, the floods of 2022. So if we look at that from the ladder of inference, we've got objective data and concrete experience, some fairly compelling objective data. We've got the walruses, the polar bears, the wildfires, President Obama, the predictions. We look at that and interpret it. Interpretations that this is terrible, humans suck. The conclusions. The conclusions some young people I've spoken to said, I don't want to have children. The actions. The actions have been, I guess, the Extinction Rebellion, people who make decisions about uh, their future lives not having children. The climate protests. Don't tell me the planet isn't my business. The oceans are rising, so will we. These are children who are striking, going out because of this, I guess, this overpowering information they're getting. Will you explain to my children what polar bears were? Is one placard. School strike for climate was another placard. And also what's come from that is, I guess, the notion of eco-anxiety. In 2017, the American Psychiatric Association described eco-anxiety as a chronic fear of environmental doom. Scientific evidence is emerging that people are starting to experience extreme or chronic anxiety because they feel as though they cannot control environmental problems, especially climate change. The anecdotal evidence is increasing. This is not yet in the Diagnostic, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Health, the DSM-5. 
However, there is an existing uh, anxiety scale developed by um, HOG um, back in 2023, well, this year. And the findings support eco-anxiety as a quantifiable psychological experience, reliably measured using their 13-item um, anxiety uh, scale. And they differentiated from other mental health outcomes. So what we see now is the development of an attitude, a very strong attitude, that where people are influencing governments around um, coal, oil, fossil fuels, etc., based on what they've seen and what they've heard. So in this, I wanted to show you how an attitude is developed and the, and the power of creating the emotions as to how we develop an attitude. I'm going to look further into this next week and probably, I guess I'll call it, unpick some of the information that I've, I, I've given to you, look at it in, in, from a different perspective. But in the meantime, uh, again, thank you for being with me. Have a little bit of a think about your attitudes and where you develop them and what confirmation biases are you using to protect those attitudes thank you very much for being with me and i look forward to seeing you next time thank you